and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to be picking up on a subject that I have dealt with actually numerous times before uh, over time because it's so important, and it's not that it's the most interesting topic, it's just a completely compelling one and one that is commanding our attention as as a citizenry and as a humanity, basically. It really, it's very ground level, so to speak. It really hits us where we live in terms of our lives, values, lifestyle, uh, and uh, all the way to what we conceive as our democratic freedoms. And that subject is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Many people haven't even heard of it. Those who listen to this show and uh, other alternative media are probably more familiar with it. Thankfully, what you will find on mainstream media is way too little, and any reference to it would be extremely partial and narrow, only looking at the tiniest part of it. And uh, not only that, but not even accurately. So we're going to be looking at what it is as a subject, what its implications are for our health, for our food chain, for our environment, for our legislation protecting our food and our environment, and our even rights, our civil rights, and what also would be the financial implications for our economy and governments. It's, it's a very embracing, all-embracing, rather comprehensive type of agreement that, as they say, makes NAFTA looks, look like it's on steroids. So with us for this first part of our uh, show today is Anna Weissman, who has been on earlier this year, who is an organizer with the Global Justice for Animals and the Environment. Uh, it's an organization addressing the threat posed by free trade agreements to animals, the environment, safe, ethical, and sustainable food, and human rights of environmental defenders, so-called activists, people who dare to care for their environment. After this section of today's show, we'll be then bringing on a couple of other guests, uh, Lachlan Arts and Joseph Robertson, to talk about COP21. We're going to discuss uh, the upcoming conferences in Bonn, Germany, and Paris, France, uh, starting in June and ending in December, which are the continuation of what has been going on, sponsored by the United Nations for quite some time now in Lima, in Denmark, elsewhere. This is supposed to be virtually the culmination of a lot of good work that has been done behind the scenes to help rein in carbon emissions that have been rampant over the past many decades. And apparently some real strides have been made that aren't well known, we'll be uncovering that and the implications of that for 
our global addressing the issues of climate change, the other main piece of what it is uh, we as a uh, citizenry need to really grapple with. So I want to now introduce you to um, to Adam uh, Weissman, who will be joining us, and I actually don't have his phone number right in front of me. I think I do. Uh, Adam, is this you? Yes, I'm here. Okay, wonderful. Welcome back to A Better World. Yes, I can. Fine. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. We have a lot to cover today. There's a lot that's happened, and hopefully we can give your listeners the tools they'll need to take action. That's right, and that's very much what we want to do. Let's just start at the top as though uh, our audience knows just the name itself and don't know much, doesn't know much about the agreement itself. Let's take it from the top and then we'll go deep. So it's open. Please educate us. Okay. So the Obama administration is currently negotiating three trade agreements. There's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is probably the best known. There's also the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership and the Trade in Services Agreement. These are NAFTA-style trade deals that the Obama administration has been trying to sell as agreements that will create jobs and prosperity when we know both based on what our experience with past trade agreements and by what's in these trade agreements through leaked documents, that these trade agreements will have just the opposite effect. These trade agreements are in reality backroom, secretly negotiated corporate power agreements designed to attack our public interest regulations, designed to make it easier for corporations to outsource jobs, designed to uh, help drug companies raise medicine prices by extending the patent life of drugs, designed to turn the Internet into a zone where corporations will monitor our daily use on behalf of intellectual property owners. Uh, The TPP and these three agreements overall are really not about creating jobs for U.S. workers. In fact, they are about creating jobs in overseas sweatshops where corporations can pay workers far less money than they would make in the U.S., where corporations do not have to abide by our higher labor rights standards, and about they're really about making it easier for corporations to profit at the expense of the rest of us. They're about making it easier for corporations to attack our environmental laws by creating a system of international tribunals outside the jurisdiction of our U.S. court system where corporations can sue our government for unlimited sums and demand monetary compensation when they believe that our environmental laws are in the way of their expected future profits. Now, and what that means is that, let's say... That- who, who jurisdicts over that kind of decision as to whether the corporation's profits are being interfered with or not? Well, those cases are arbitrated by unelected trade lawyers with no conflict of interest clauses. They might be a corporate lawyer uh, representing a corporation in a case like this another week, and then that week they're an arbitrator. The cases are heard through the two, one of two venues, either uh, The tribunals are either constituted under the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, 
at the which is part of the World Bank or through uh, through a, a UN arbitration body, and but ultimately the these cases are really designed to uh, make foreign corporations more powerful than nations. They, uh, mm-hmm. A foreign corporation under these, under these investment rules has greater rights than a domestic corporation. A U.S. corporation has to abide by our environmental laws and our food safety laws and our consumer rights protections. Yeah. A foreign corporation has the, this, this upper hand because they can bring these kind of investor suits. So that uh, actually gives an advantage to foreign corporations. It also gives an incentive for corporations to do more business overseas. If you're a U.S. company, why would you want to uh, to pay workers U.S. wages? Why would you have to abide by our environmental laws when you can uh, produce your commodities somewhere else with with lower wages and with less environmental laws and have the added benefit of being able to use these kind of tribunals when laws are passed that you don't like? So this exactly. Actually... It, so you're right. It it encourages U.S. companies to divest of U.S. investments and go elsewhere. So we those companies can do there what other comp, uh, foreign companies would be doing here. Right. So. And what we've also seen is that sometimes when corporations do want to sue their own governments, they use the loophole of claiming that they are domiciled in another country, um, and so they, uh, so we we actually are giving we and we are helping corporations have new uh, new tools to attack uh, to attack our laws. Just an example of how a corporation can manipulatively uh, do what I just described. There is a Canadian corporation called uh, Lone Pine Resources, and this is mo- mostly a Canadian company. They're claiming to be a U.S. company, so that because they have uh, they have some some uh, some operations in the U.S., they're claiming to be a U.S. company so that they can take the benefit of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and then mm-hmm. sue the United sorry uh, as a U.S. company sue Canada because Quebec banned fracking. And this is an energy company, uh, energy resources company that uh, is invested in fracking. So they want monetary compensation because they're not going to be able to frack in Quebec. So this mm. is, just creates this wonderful loophole for corporations to go outside of national court systems and really shake down countries over their, uh, their national laws, over the law so and, Adam, their, and their local if- and state laws. According to the case. same logic, then the uh, the owners of the XL pipeline company could, in effect, no matter what the outcome of the State Department's decision, could sue uh, the United States government, i.e., the people, uh, for profits they thought that they should be earning if the pipeline were agreed to, and they would have a legal case in those judiciary bodies you referred to. That's already a concern that people have discussed. Yes. Uh, this oh. is exact, and, and we there are case after case. I mean, this sounds, when people, you say this to people, this, they, people think you're talking about a, a, a paranoid fantasy. But then you, yeah. then you tell people about the actual cases that are going on right now. There is yeah. a case, I, I mentioned the fracking case. There's also a case in El Salvador where, the nation of El Salvador is being sued by a mining company for over $300 million because that company wanted to do open pit gold mining, using tox- which is a, a process that use- involves toxic chemicals that could pollute the nation's largest source of drinking water, the Rio Lempa. Mm. 
So people in El Salvador are now being sued for wanting to not drink water with arsenic in it. So for three hundred million dollars, their their national that treasury is, is in effect being raided by. Example. And another yeah, one, even even more money involved. If you look at Peru, there's a country. Uh, sorry, there's a, a company that is suing Peru for eight hundred million dollars. The uh, U.S. billionaire by the name of Ira Rennert has a company, Renco, which has a subsidiary in Peru that is that operates a metal smelter site that's been classified as one of the ten most toxic sites in the world. And so the a Peruvian court has repeatedly ruled that they have to clean up that site. They keep trying to get delays on the the order to remediate. Uh, three times the court has told them that they need to remediate, and they got delays. Finally, the court didn't give them a delay that third time. And so now they're bringing this $800 uh, million suit because they don't want to clean up their own mess. Mm. There's a case, and that is being brought under the U.S.-Peru Free Trade Agreement. And uh, we should, and that is an important example. And the reason I say that that's an important example is the U.S.-Peru Free Trade Agreement, when that was negotiated, was held up as this example of a, uh, a, a trade agreement with new, better environmental rules. This is going to be a green trade agreement. The Democrats uh, in the House, the leadership of the, Demo- the House, leadership of the House Democrats, ended up supporting that agreement against the majority of House Democrats. And the thing that they used for political cover on that was the May 10th bipartisan agreement on trade. This is something that House Democrats worked out in conjunction with the Bush administration's Office of the U.S. Trade Representative that was supposed to build new labor and environmental rules into the already negotiated U.S.-Peru free trade agreement and into other trade agreements under negotiation and would sort of be the new template for greener, more labor-friendly trade agreements. Mm. Well... Mm. environmentalists, many of them at the time, said that this is really not a sufficient change. Lori Wallach at Public Citizens Global Trade Watch famously said that the May 10th agreement is like icing on a rotten cake. And Mm. so then we saw Mm. that she was absolutely right with this Renko case where uh, all these wonderful new environmental protections didn't do a damn thing to stop this case. And so now what we're being told with TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a 12-country agreement that the countries involved encompass 40% of the global economy. This is the largest trade agreement proposal in history. And what's more, it's considered a docking agreement, meaning that after this thing goes into law, uh, if it does, which we hope it doesn't, they can add new countries after the fact without a new congressional vote. So in TPP... Uh, President Obama has been marketing this as the most progressive trade deal in history. Uh, Sandy Levin, who is the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee, the trade committee in Congress, the committee that trade bills go through in Congress, has actually just put out an open letter yesterday saying that, no, in fact, this is not the most uh, progressive trade agreement in history. This is actually a step backwards from the Bush trade agreements. So we're going backwards from the high environmental standards of the Bush administration as far as these all trade agreements are concerned. All we have to do is take a look at all we have to do is take a look at the history of trade agreements to see how regressive they all are. And if this is worse than what was passed during the Bush era, we know that we're in trouble. I want to set a uh, context for people just so they really get it. You're so on the inside of the Uh, you know, really the horrors of this on every single level. Folks, what we're looking at is all of the hard-won, hard-earned 
breakthroughs we've had in Congress since the 1970s and before, but primarily since then, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, everything is in jeopardy. All of the food, USDA, some of the protections, which of course are nowhere near where we would want them to be, what with GMO labeling, GMOs in general, on and on, that's another conversation. But what hard-earned legislation we have gotten to protect us, to protect the food chain, to protect our environment uh, against any number of different kind of chemical com- contaminants or not, are all the labor laws, are all in jeopardy and become subject and subordinate to a corporate, unelected, as you said, Adam, judiciary. So what that means is it basically puts into suspension everything that we hold dear and sacred as democratic legislative process with lobbying rights and the like, all of it. So we lose the environmental protections, we lose the food protections, we lose the labor protections, we lose the corporate uh, tax revenue, which, by the way, isn't much anyway for lots of other reasons, yet also another conversation. And when you add it all up, there is nothing good and there's a whole lot bad. Tell me where I'm wrong here. You're not wrong at all. You're absolutely right. Actually, I want to add to something you just said which is that you mentioned uh, corporate taxes. The trade agree- one of the ways that these trade agreements actually facilitate corporations hiding their taxes, and one of the reasons why when President Obama, uh, over the last few weeks, he's really been uh, making an assault on the movement fighting for fairer trade agreements and saying things like, you, you must, I, I would have to be stupid to push these kind of things if if uh, if they were bad for the middle class, and that the people who are yeah. raising concerns about the, he said that Elizabeth Warren is completely wrong. He's compared activists for fair and more responsible trade policies to uh, Sarah Palin talking about death panels. So he is really just uh, going on the offensive and uh, attacking. And he says that the reason people are concerned about these trade agreements is because of their they're fighting old battles. They're fighting the, the battle against old trade agreements that have already passed, and people sort of just have a hangover from bad trade deals. And the Obama trade deals are going to be completely different. Well, what President Obama does not mention when he talks about that is the fact that we have the very recent memory, not long ago memory of NAFTA, but the very recent memory of three trade agreements that were signed into law, not under the Bush administration, not under the Clinton administration, but under the Obama administration. And those are the U.S.-South Korea trade agreement, the which is commonly called the CORUS, U.S.-South Korea free trade agreement, the U.S.-Panama free trade agreement, and the U.S.-Columbia free trade agreement. And the reason I'm bringing this up at this moment is you mentioned corporate taxes. Well, President Obama, one of the things that he, one of his many promises was that he would address the issue of corporate tax havens and uh, addressing the problem of corporations and billionaires hiding their money in overseas accounts to avoid really having to pay their fair share. Well, one Mm -hmm. of the things, which that was really contradicted by he and they they did some uh, they did pass some legislation they did some, some policies that were supposed to address that issue but really uh, not 
substantial enough to address the next thing they did, which is to pass the U.S.-Panama Free Trade Agreement. Panama is a notorious corporate tax haven. This is a country that has uh, notorious banking secrecy laws. It is the easiest thing to domicile a corporation in Panama, to basically set up a P.O. box and say you're a Panamanian corporation so that you can try to say that, so that you can keep your money in Panamanian banks and claim to be a Panamanian company and say that you have to, that your tax obligations are Panamanian and uh, hide a lot of money. So mm-hmm. the President Obama has certainly not helped to address that issue. And as for his other two trade agreements and the promises that they offered uh, and that he well, first of all, we should look at President Obama's own promises. As a candidate, first of all, he said that he would either fix NAFTA or use the his phrase, I believe, was the hammer of a, the threat of a potential pullout to bring the other countries to the table to force negotiations. And he certainly has not pulled us out of NAFTA. He certainly has not brought other countries to the table to negotiate fixing the environmental problems or uh, or labor issues involved in NAFTA. He, his administration has tried occasionally to say, well, that's what TPP is. That's us fixing NAFTA. But even people on his own side of the issue will admit that this is not, that's not what they're doing. They're expanding TPP. They're, not, they're expanding NAFTA through TPP. They're certainly not, uh, not fixing the problems in, TP, in, uh, in NAFTA through TPP. On my so, website for quite some time at abetterworld.tv, Adam, I've had a, uh, an article on a similar kind of thing to what you cited in Peru, not as draconian, but it was a gold company that wanted to do business in Costa Rica, and the Costa Rican government decided that the uh, the chemical contamination to their water supply and soil was too severe, and they decided this was not going to be good, even though the money was going to look good. Their values were such that their water and their soil were more important to them. And they made that decision, and the, cost, and the uh, foreign uh, gold company, its name is escaping me right now, uh, sued the Costa Rican government, very much akin to what you're saying happened in Peru, and the kind of example that would be happening and dominating our courts, as though our courts aren't filled enough where people who have done really dramatically harmful things to others or corporations have are still backed up for years. Can you imagine if our court system was then going to be dominated by a whole new rash of these kinds of, of of suits that would not only jam up our court system, but if upon losing them, the U.S. taxpayer, citizen, would be on the hook for potentially trillions upon trillions of dollars in paying corporations money that is actually all just uh, ephemeral. It's illusionary. It's based on on um, projections of what they hope they would have made. It could and probably would uh, inspire a lot of people to open up foreign corporations, come here, try to um, start business, turn around, sue the government for millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars so they can clean up on what they think they should have made. 
Well, we don't have to worry about these cases uh, clogging up our court system for the reason that these cases are not arbitrated within our court system. They have circumvented our court system altogether. We have outsourced our judi- we, we've outsourced our judiciary in a sense with these trade agreements. So they won't be yeah. clogging up our court system because our court system will have no say in these cases. So they've taken care of that. Uh, but uh, we certainly yes, do uh, have to worry exactly. about our national treasury being raided through these agreements. That is a reality. Now, the yeah. U.S. has has not uh, historically uh, been the loser of these cases, and uh, but that's really not a reason to think, first of all, that this is a legitimate system, and second of all, to think that that we won't be. Most of the case, are, most of the arbitrations so far have been with much smaller countries, with smaller economies, and less resources. Uh, in, with agreements like TPP, we're dealing with countries like Japan. We're, uh, this is not about. Uh, this is not a case where uh, we're dealing Korea. with countries like El Salvador or Costa Rica. We. What are those countries uh, that are uh, party to this agreement? Okay, so the Trans-Pacific Partnership is an agreement that includes the United States, Canada, Mexico, Chile, Peru. Um, the uh, and uh, then in uh, then sorry, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Brunei Darussalam, um, Japan. Is that twelve? Am I leaving anyone up? Um, it's twelve. It's a twelve-nation agreement. Korea. The uh, Korea is has been. There's been discussion about adding South Korea. South Korea is not currently part of TPP, but um, South Korea is. There's. The, is the in its own separate agreement reference. that was passed in 2011, yes. uh, which, by the way, was an agreement that. So when people are when President Obama is talking about, well, why you know why, why aren't people why don't people trust him? Well, maybe it's because the U.S. South Korea Free Trade Agreement was passed in 2011, and according to Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, it's already cost the U.S. 85,000 jobs. So that might be why we're not trusting him in terms of trade agreements, considering <laughs> that so. as a candidate he pledged to oppose that agreement, and uh, yeah. then and said that specific talked specifically about how it was going there were big issues with US automobiles and with beef and uh that he had to fix increase market access for beef and automobiles well they did deal with those two little issues but pretty much ignored every other concern that people had about the, those agreements and uh, as a result uh the US South Korea free trade agreement uh, has been a great agreement if uh, you want to export Korean goods to the U.S. Oh, did I say Korean goods? I'm sorry, I misspoke, because the U.S.-South Korea Free Trade Agreement has a rule of origin set at 35%, which means that a good that is exported to the U.S. from South Korea only needs to have 35% of its components actually made in South Korea, which means you can make most of it in a Vietnamese sweatshop, import those components into South Korea for assembly, and then export sweatshop-made goods into the U.S. tariff-free. So uh, that is why we do yeah. not trust President Obama's trade agenda. But I digress. Um, so we're let's let everyone know. Okay, you so, right, so there's the TPP to, uh, countries, right? The other two agreements, the uh, Transatlantic Trade and Investment that, Partnership. Uh, let me just, Adam, just one moment. I want to let everyone sure. know you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. here, and you can access us through our website at betterworld.tv. We have a free newsletter there. Please get on. It lists the shows we have, a Manhattan-based community cable television show every Monday evening at 7, then this, A Better World Radio, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Please join us and uh, share it with your friends. These are the types of subjects we deal with 
always looking to create a better world uh, health-wise, food-wise, environmentally, and overall human rights, animal rights, and spiritually. Today we are focused on two main subjects. One is the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Agreement and uh, Adam Weissman, who's an organizer with Global Justice for Animals and the Environment, is speaking with us and educating us about these. And in fact, I'd like to uh, bear down, and also uh, following this, we will be speaking about COP21, the uh, issues around climate change from a UN point of view, and the steps that are being taken, some very good steps to uh, hasten our reduction of carbon emissions planet-wide, and we'll have a couple of other guests then. Uh, Adam Weissman, if you would, talk about specifically the environmental and the animal issues that we would be facing if something like the TPP, if the TPP were to actually be made law. Sure. And we need to look, in fact, at all three of these agreements and their implications. And after that, I would love to tell your listeners a little bit about Fast Track, which is the battle that we're fighting Please. right now. So Yes. TPP and uh, so again the three agreements are TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, and TISA, the Trade in Services Agreement. Regarding yeah. animals, uh, one of the most controversial areas of the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership is the fact that big the uh, big agriculture, specifically the big meat in the U.S is seeing this opportunity sorry this sorry this agreement as an opportunity to attack the US's uh, sorry to attack Europe's animal protection laws regarding farmed animals Europe has higher standards regarding the treatment of farmed animals than we have in the US also higher food safety standards and mm. both of those are bad news for the US factory farming industry so industries that want to keep animals under 50 under filthy crowded conditions that uh, want to cage animals that want to uh, wash poultry in chlorine because they've uh, kept uh, kept in processed chickens under such filthy conditions uh, do not like yeah. European standards that prevent these kind of practices. They don't like things like GMO bans, as you mentioned. And mm -hmm. so they see TTIP as an opportunity to promote regulatory cooperation, which is a nice-sounding phrase that means race to the bottom, really. It means yeah. let's have one flat set of rules that we all share, and oh, by the way, let's make it the lowest rules. So that means yeah. uh, getting rid of the U.S.'s higher standards on banking regulation. It means getting rid of U Europe's higher standards on animal welfare and food safety. They, of course, are denying that that's what it's going to mean in the end. Um, mm -hmm. But since, they are keep since the negotiating texts are being kept secret, since we are not seeing the U.S. negotiating proposals other than when documents are leaked, uh, since uh, we are... Uh, really uh, have to take them at their word on that that they are not uh, that this is not what they're doing. But uh, the leaks have certainly led us to think otherwise. The and what we do know about these agreements, by the way, is large. These is really largely thanks to WikiLeaks and other courageous people who have leaked the text of these agreements. And pretty much every leak has been damning. So another concern is that the language regarding environmental protection and, uh, in fact, wildlife protection in the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a big disappointment because the U.S. was had said that this would be this high standards environmental agreement that would build in all these binding environmental rules and had all these had all these great environmental objectives that everyone was really happy about, 
And then the environmental chapter was leaked, and it turned out that really these are all, they're kind of written as guidelines. It's kind of like it would be sort of a nice thing if you did this. It uses words like, uh, words that are... Recommendations. Right. Words that in, in, in sort of the jargon of international of, of international trade speak are are effectively non binding. There's sort of it sort of lays out uh you know, what, what you what would be nice if you would do and not what you're is actually going to be enforceable under the agreement. So things like addressing the problem of shark finning, which is something that people were were really hoping this agreement would address, given that these agreements uh uh were was given that this agreement was promised as a to, as a, as this high standards environmental agreement are really uh, dealt with in, in largely non-binding language in the agreement. Mm-hmm. This is the practice where uh, sharks are being decimated by having their fins cut off to be uh, used in soups and medicinals, and uh, then really thrown back live into the oceans. There uh, are real concerns about Malaysia trying to use TPP as an opportunity for expanded exports of palm oil. Uh, in Malaysia, uh, rainforests are being clear-cut for palm oil plantations, risking the lives of and the species survival of orangutans, of pygmy elephants, of Malayan tigers, and many other species. The TPP and TTIP are really designed as agreements to help promote the international trade in fossil fuels. There was a secretly leaked memo uh, that a leaked secret memo rather that. Uh, suggests that the European Union wants to require the U.S. under TTIP to uh, export uh, uh, liquid natural gas and to export crude oil, which is currently prohibited under U.S. law. We have current U.S. law, which says that when we're in a trade agreement like these with uh, countries, we have the normal uh, community approval process for liquid natural gas export terminals, which is the uh, liquid natural gas is the form that fracked gas is exported and are circumvented. So the community uh, approval process is put aside for uh, export terminals to countries that we're exporting gas to. Well, Japan is the world's largest importer of natural gas. So these agreements are uh, widely opposed by by environmental groups like Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth who have serious concerns about both the environment, the disappointing environmental chapter, and also about what the regulatory uh, cooperation and coherence chapters of these agreements could mean in terms of lowering standards, and about how the investment chapter uh, will open the door for these kind of investment suits I mentioned, where corporations can attack environmental laws. The and there are many animal groups that have raised concerns about the potential threat to farmed animal welfare posed by TTIP. Groups like Compassion in World Farming, World Animal Protection um, have been actively raising uh, raising concerns about what this agreement could mean for the hard-won victories in creating higher standards for animal protection uh, in Europe. So th- there and so, but this is of course just one of the many areas of public interest uh, legislation that is under attack, and ultimately of our right to pass our own laws. Even if you're someone who is not very concerned about animal legislation, even if you're someone who thinks we have too many environmental rules and that we should have less environmental regulations, those are decisions that should be made by the democratically elected representatives of voters. Those are things that should not be decided by international tribunals deciding what laws we do and don't have. That's the reason why many conservatives who are not necessarily uh, believers in uh, 
lots of environmental regulations, uh, still feel that these kind of tribunals are terrible and that these trade agreements need to be opposed because fundamentally they're an attack on U.S. sovereignty. Fundamentally, they're an attack on the U.S.'s ability to make its own laws for U.S. elected officials to represent the will of their voters. Uh, Congress is basically, by signing, by voting on these trade agreements, voting itself out of a job. And that exactly. becomes even clearer when we understand fast track. And fast track is Just a key exactly. battle that we're That's really fighting right important now. important subject here. Right. Please, if you would, and, make that clear, even though we're in the clear, no pun intended, uh, for a moment in time because of the uh, vote yesterday. If you would please explain what it is and what its implications are. Okay. Well, Woods yet uh, the the vote I'll I'll get to I'll explain what's happening in Congress now but first just the background on fast track uh, yes. fast track is Nixon era legislation that really puts Congress in a position of delegating its trade uh, negotiating authority to the executive branch so what happens is co the Constitution the Commerce Clause of the Constitution which is Article One Section Eight Clause C uh, for anyone who wants to look it up, it pretty explicitly mm -hmm. puts Congress in charge of uh, of of our international of our international commerce agreements. It says that com that Congress has that responsibility, not the executive branch. So what Congress has done is delegated that authority to the executive branch, so that the executive branch can go and negotiate agreements and sort of bring finished agreements back to Congress. Now, where that becomes problematical in particular is the way that they've done that is, well, there are a few things about it. One is that under fast-track rules, uh, Congress gives, gives the administration that power and says what they would like trade agreements to look like. They can say, they can build all kinds of things into that, like into that, uh, into the granting of fast track, into that legislation. They can say what countries they want negotiations to happen with. They can say what conditions they want in those agreements. Problem is, the fast track legislation is non-binding. The administration does not actually have to pay attention to any of the things Congress told it, them it wanted them to do. Once the administration has that power, it can then negotiate trade agreements and then send them to Congress to be voted on. And then Congress has 90 days to vote, 60 in the House. So, and when they, within those 60 days, they cannot in any way amend the legislation. They can't hold it up in committee. They can't uh, filibuster it into eternity. They are required to have a vote, and they can't make any changes to what they're voting on. They're even required to be limited to 20 hours of floor debate. So from the time, basically the clock starts ticking at 20 hours, and then uh, they have to be finished debating. Uh, Alan Grayson, the congressman from Florida, has said that if every member of the House wanted to offer floor testimony, uh, it, it, that would mean that they'd each have 88 seconds. So this is really designed to railroad bad deals through Congress. That is what Fast Track is for. And that's particularly concerning when we see that trade agreements increasingly are not about trade. They're really about ways of tucking domestic legislation into so-called trade deals, really uh, uh, define, redefining domestic policy, redefining our own laws, tucking it into executive negotiated trade deals, and then forcing them through Congress in ways that could never happen with legislation that Congress would actually vote on under a normal process. Things like SOPA, the Stop Online Piracy Act, the, which is this uh, legislation that uh, potentially criminalizes everyday Internet use, was dead in the water when it was dealt with as its own legislation. When that was... So now they're trying to tuck that kind of language into deals like TPP, these secretly negotiated deals that then after negotiating in secret, they rush to Congress to be voted on 
and then Congress can't change any of what they're voting on. They can only vote up or vote down. And what we know historically is that every trade agreement that's ever gone to Congress under fast-track rules is successfully passed. Because once the agreements are rushed to Congress, then Congress has uh, all the lobbyists leaning on them, and they can pretty much always get 51% of the votes to pass a trade agreement when the when the uh, Congress members are hearing the threat that, you know, if you don't pass this, we're going to say that you passed up, we're going to take buy commercials to say that you passed up this opportunity to uh, create jobs and prosperity and you're not helping create growth and prosperity. So they, because it's a package deal, they always get these agreements through and all the rotten things that are tucked into them go along with them. So what's happening right now is that President Obama has negotiated these agreements throughout his entire administration without having fast-track authority, with the idea that he would then go and get it after the fact. So TPP is almost, uh, it's a nearly completed negotiation or so they've been telling us, that has been going on pretty much since a year into President Obama's term. And now that they're almost done with it, President Obama is going to Congress and asking Congress to give him fast-track authority pretty much retroactively and saying, well, this is how Congress you know, has a say. This is how Congress will have a stake in this negotiation, which is ridiculous because the thing's already largely been negotiated. So Congress can give President Obama well, his non-binding uh, rights. of the entire purpose of fast-track is actually to abdicate any authority, abrogate it, uh, of Congress to weigh in on the terms of the agreement. He's asking right. them to hand it over to him, is what you're saying. That's what Right, and the absurd is. thing is that the Republicans who campaigned on reigning in President Obama's out-of-control executive authority, that was the message for yeah. the entire last election, was yeah. the executive power of the president and how President Obama is taking too much executive authority. It's now the Republicans who are leading the charge on giving President Obama more executive authority. It's uh, Orrin Hatch, the Senate good Finance Committee chair, and uh, Paul Ryan, the Ways and Means chair, who is now Barack Obama's best buddy, apparently, and they're mm. the ones who want to give this new authority to President Obama. Very so what happened in the Senate point. yesterday is yeah. that uh, we and we we need to be very clear on this. What happened in the Senate was that the Democrats wanted strongly to move four bills together. They didn't just want to move the fast track bill. They wanted to move the fast track bill along with a bill on uh, called uh, trade adjustment assistance, which provides funding for retraining for workers whose jobs are lost as a result of these terrible trade deals. They also wanted to move the African Opportunities Act, and they also wanted to move a uh, bill that would have had, a customs bill that would have had uh, potentially serious implications for, uh, for Fast Track and TPP because it would have addressed the issue of China as a currency manipulator, which has been one of the most uh, controversial issues about these trade agreements is that the issue of currency manipulation is not being addressed. This is, currency mm -hmm. manipulation is where uh, countries artificially uh, lower their currency, uh, lower the value, the value of their currency, um, yeah. which increases their which increases their their export opportunities, and uh, is is uh, is not is something that has been addressed directly as. Uh, as a as a job killer for the for the US because the US the the high value of the US dollar versus artificially uh devalued currencies um is has been addressed seen as one of the key things that's needed to really address the the problem of how of how trade agreements could uh fix the uh US job losses if we tried to yeah. uh regulate trade manipulation right exactly so 
so that was so the Democrats wanted to move all these bills together. The Republicans didn't, and so that prevented the Senate from uh, reaching cloture yesterday. In the Senate, of course, they need 60 votes to uh, prevent a filibuster. They need 60 votes to move ahead, and. So they uh, they didn't have the 60 votes. They had a majority, but they didn't have a full 60 votes. Today they did reach a deal. So what they're going to do is those fir- the Africa Growth and Opportunities Bill and the Customs Bill those are going to uh, move separately. And so they those have those have already they got the 60 votes on both of those. TAA Trans- Trade Adjustment Assistance is going to be bundled with the Fast Track Bill. And so now they're going to be going to an amendment process on the fast track bill. But really, uh and this is a lot of so detail. So what what, that, what does that look like? I mean, does that mean I mean yesterday there was some, you know, rejoicing in the streets because fast track was defeated, uh even though I know that that's temporary. Uh but of course it could happen again. So what is the current state now? Is it looking like is it looking better than for fast track to pass based on this new bundling? Um, it, so it the I think the the thing that we really just at this point need to remember is that uh and it can go either way because on the one hand uh found it the the democrats are the democrats are more likely to vote for the democrats are more likely to vote for it with TA the republicans are more likely to vote for it against but our the message that in a sense this that's not even something we need to think about what we need to know all of us what we need to do our role in all of this is to contact our elected officials and let them know that whether it's bundled with TAA, whether it's bundled with you know anything, there is no good fast track. Uh, they could, uh, they could, they could, they Correct. could, uh, they they cannot bundle this agreement with any. They cannot bundle fast track with anything that's going to make fast track acceptable. Uh, Congress should maintain its power to on its own time on its own timeline carefully debo- uh, debate these agreements to amend them where necessary there is no uh no bundling that makes it appropriate for congress to give up its its power to carefully deliberate on legislation and to amend legislation and really that's not even just a matter of of trade policy that's just good uh, that's just the legislature doing its job that's just respecting our system of separation yeah. of powers the fact that we have three co-equal branches of government. The legislative branch is supposed to write legislation. The legislative branch is supposed to have a say on what legislation uh, our government passes. Even if we think yeah. there's a reason why, for the sake of efficiency, that Congress wants to delegate the, the, the actual negotiation to the executive branch, there is no reason why Congress shouldn't have the power to be able to say, this is not what we want, this is what the voters want. So we need to uh, we need to tell our elected officials there is no acceptable fast track. One easy way for people to do that is to go to stopfasttrack.com. It's a website where you can enter your phone number, and then the website will actually call you and connect you to your elected officials. We should call our elected officials. We should email our elected officials. We should visit our elected officials' offices. Uh, many of them will be back in district during uh, the during Memorial Day uh, recess, and that's a great time to try to get meetings with them. We should uh, we should uh, meet with other people in our communities and try to get uh, different groups together to visit our our legislators together, environmentalists, labor activists, 
people concerned about how these trade agreements will raise prices of medicines, people concerned about Internet freedom, uh, people concerned about uh, preserving our right to label genetically modified food. There are so many different concerns that are addressed by these issues. We need to be talking to Democrats and Republicans alike. As I mentioned, there are Republicans who are deeply concerned about the threat to U.S. sovereignty posed by these agreements and who are deeply concerned about the disrespect to constitutional process, the disrespect to uh, our, our whole design of our system that is inherent in fast track, that it really is uh, transferring too much power to the executive branch and uh, tipping the scales in terms of our our, our, our balanced system of three co-equal branches of government. So there are, uh, and of course, there are frankly conservatives who just don't like the idea of giving more power to this president. Who uh, have already, when you've spent your when you've spent uh, many of the, uh, many people worked hard to elect Republican elected officials because they felt President Obama was too powerful, and a lot of those folks do not want to see President Obama become even more powerful. So yeah. that's a message that conservatives need to be bringing to uh, their uh, Republican elected officials, and those of us in Republican districts need to be reminding our, our Republican elected officials of these agreements about sovereignty and about uh, how fast track threatens the Constitution and threatens separation of powers, and also talking about how, that these trade agreements have been job killers, that the issue of currency manipulation, which again and again Congress has said really needs to be a part of these trade agreements for them to be worthwhile, is not being, is not being addressed in TPP, uh, despite the fact that both current TPP countries like Japan and prospective TPP countries like China are countries where currency manipulation has been raised as a major concern. So it's really uh, people, uh, you know, now that people have heard all this stuff about bundling and not bundling and so on, now you can just forget all that. Don't even worry about that. It'll just get, mm -hmm. it, it's uh, the thing that you just need to remember is no fast track, and that uh, tell your elected officials that uh, that November 16, 2016 is around the corner for your House members. Uh, some senators, of course, will be facing re-election that year. Some won't. But let them know either way that you have a long memory and that uh, you know that. Uh, that you that you know that already the U.S.-Korea trade agreement has been a job killer. Uh, that you know that uh, the that this trade that despite President Obama's promises, this trade agreement is not something radically new. It's more of the same, and that Congress should not be voting to give the president fast track powers for a trade agreement that, on the one hand, has already largely been negotiated, but on the other hand, we don't have the power to see. Um, it would be one thing if President Obama went to Congress before a negotiation and asked for permission to do negotiation and then negotiated an agreement, but to, uh, which, frankly, we wouldn't support either because uh, fast track is just a bad idea, period. But uh, to, make, first uh, of all, in, go in. Mm -hmm. In closing, uh, mm -hmm. no, I, I so appreciate all of your uh, full knowledge of what is going on here, and I know we've actually only tapped some of it, and it's great. But I do want uh, to wrap this up for the moment, and we can always have you back on. But I would like you, if you would, please, Adam, make clear so it's uh, known to people what the secrecy aspect of this has been, that interestingly, a lot of what we have has come from WikiLeaks, which uh, is its own interesting source for information for our own Congress on this. Speak about, if you would, the secrecy and the lack of access to the information on uh, TPP that our own Congress has and the limits that they must enter a review of the documents with 
i.e., no pencil, no staff member, no aide, etc. Yeah, well, even even the level level of access that members of Congress have now is an increase from what they had before, and so we have um, members of Congress have this very, as you mentioned, very limited access to the negotiating texts. They have they have closed door access. Where they can go into a room with a representative of the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. They can read what they want to read. I mean, they can read what they see there. Uh, as someone from the office of the U.S. Trade Representative is basically staring over them, and uh, they are not allowed to tell anyone what they've actually seen. Uh, so they can basically go into a room, read what they read, and then are sworn to secrecy about what they've seen. The corporation, mm. the, the over 500 it's like corporate advisors, order. meanwhile, it's like a gag order. These documents are being classified as national security documents. Meanwhile, the 500-plus corporate advisors who are part of industry trade advisory committees have right. click of a button access on their computers to the relevant chapters of the agreement that affect their industry so that they can uh, really shape the negotiations on uh, through t uh, dealing with the negotiators and telling them what they want in these agreements. Congressman Alan Grayson has said, having, and he, is one of the, he was really the first because uh, who, he had a petition demanding that he as a member of Congress be able to see the text of these agreements. And so finally, after raising enough of a stink, he was granted this very uh, restricted access. And what he said is that having seen what I've seen, I would characterize this as a gross abrogation of American sovereignty. And I would further mm. characterize it as a punch. This is his reaction to the text of TPP, uh, the negotiating text. And I would further characterize it as a punch in the face to the middle class of America. I think that's fair to say from what I've seen so far, but I'm not allowed to tell you why. And he also said, what I, see, what I saw was yeah. nothing that could possibly justify the secrecy that surrounds it. So these documents are being classified as if they're something like nuclear secrets. Uh, but really, the, the, there's no reason for a trade agreement to be negotiated that way. President Bush gave, did not have this level of secrecy around trade negotiations. NAFTA was not negotiated with this level of secrecy. Congress. Uh, Congressman Grayson also said, this more than anything shows the abuse of the classified information system. This is not documents being classified for national security. This is not to protect undercover CIA agents. This is not to protect uh, uh, military secrets. This is for the yeah. sole reason of protecting information. They say that it's you know, if the, if the negotiations got out, it could make it difficult to uh, have to it could complicate things and sticky negotiations with other countries. They're doing this for one reason and one reason only. It's to, only it's to lock the public out. It's to lock civil society out. It's to give the corporations the inside track access while locking out Doctors Without Borders, while locking out the Sierra Club, while locking out Amnesty International, while locking out Oxfam, while either bringing in a tiny number of advisors from NGOs who are sworn to secrecy about what they see. Um, or locking out civil society altogether while giving the uh, corp while giving the Monsantos and the Halliburtons and their industry groups the insider access. Exactly, Adam Weissman. I just thank you again so much for bringing this amount of knowledge to the table. I know you're very deeply involved in it and educating people. Why don't you give us the website that? Uh, gets us involved and allows us to weigh in with our Congress people and to be part of the solution, which is what this is so much about, and your own website of your own Global Watch organization. Sure. People can check out tradejustice.net, 
which is the website of Trade Justice New York Metro. It's a coalition of groups in the New York metropolitan area from many of the movements I've mentioned working on many of the environmental and social justice um, and economic and range of issues affected by these trade agreements. Uh, and then we all I, that, so that's tradejustice.net, and people can also check out the website of Global Justice for Animals and the Environment, and that website is gjae.org, gjae.org, or an easier to remember version of the same what, what URL for the same website is uh, freetradekilledanimals.org. Great, so and you mentioned earlier beautiful, and also stopfasttrack.com in order to weigh in with your respective congresspeople and senators. Thank you so much for all that you're doing and your contribution to us here at A Better World Radio. Thank you so much, and thanks to your listeners for taking action on this issue. Call your members of Congress tomorrow, the day after, and the day after that, and let them know that you care about Fast Track and you care about Congress having the power to have a say over trade deals that will have a profound impact on all of our lives. Absolutely. Thank you again, Adam Weissman. Keep up the good work, and we'll have you on again. It's a long conversation, and we are tracking this really weekly because of its incredible, powerful importance. So you'll be hearing from me again, and we'll revisit the subject. Thanks so much. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. We'll be going into our next segment in just a moment. Just to remind you that uh, at abetterworld.tv, you can hear this show. You can also listen by phone at 602-753-1860. We have a lot of people who like to do that. Of course, many listen in archive on your cell phone. I think it's wonderful. It's great. Uh, and this information, it cannot be overestimated how important it is for everyone to get involved. In short, this particular subject of these trade agreements are undermining the entire essence of our republic, of our democratic society, of the entire purpose of having three branches of government that uh, represent the people, all of it, all of it is in effect eviscerated through these treaties. Uh, I say it over and again, uh, Adam Weissman and the others, Lori Wallach, uh, everyone is saying this over and over, Gary Null, because it's true. And it's um, virtually... Incredible. It is such an unbelievably horrific, unethical, and should be unconstitutional type of agreement that uh, you can't really believe that our president is bringing it to bear and pushing it as it is and as he is. It's, it's, it's hard to actually digest this because it is so antithetical to the values and the ethics and the uh, importance, the integrity of our system and our way of life. So uh, with that, I want to just thank you all for listening and being part of the solution, which is the way we make things happen as long as we have a democratic society. So moving right along, I want to introduce you to our next guest, 
to pick up on another incredibly important subject, which has to do with our environment, which has to do with climate change. And everyone everywhere is experiencing the effects of climate change, no matter what climate deniers may have to say about the matter. Things are changing, and many people are taking great steps to do a lot about it, to rein in the uh, the carbon emissions and coming up with strategies for taxing them, for assigning fees to their profligate uh, expense to our environment. It's uh, really wonderful. A lot of this is being done in the domains of business where people are just beginning to see it doesn't make economic sense just on that level alone, and others are more relying on governmental policies and decisions. Well, all of that is represented in the COP21 international UN-based conferences that are taking place, and our next guests are two people who are very involved in this and will be speaking with us about that. Our first guest is uh, Lachlan Arts, who for the past 30 years has been a leader in the field of cultural transformation and contextual activism, wonderful phrase, specializing in linguistics and its impact on global culture and the human condition. Uh, Lachlan has worked with thousands of individuals and in partnership with organizations such as the Hunger Project, Head Start, the International Red Cross, and the Field Robotics Center at Carnegie Mellon University. Lachlan has been instrumental in creating and realizing large-scale initiatives that have dramatically impacted the quality of life. Interestingly, Lachlan Arts has also run for President of the United States. He was a candidate in the 2012 election. So it's a pleasure to have Lachlan on with us. And joining us as well is Joseph Robertson, who is a global strategy director for the nonpartisan nonprofit group Citizens Climate Lobby. He's the author of the book Building a Green Economy on the Economics of Carbon Pricing and the Transition to Clear Renewable Fuels. He is also the founder and president of Geo, uh, GeoServe. I'm so sorry. Yeah, GeoServe. Envisioning, which is uh, offers analysis, policy, planning, and media endeavors that aims to discover and deploy the ingredients of a clean future of global abundance. Both these gentlemen are uh, planning to be at the COP21 conferences coming up uh, in June initially in Bonn, Germany, and followed some months. Uh, afterward in Paris. There's a lot happening here. It's really got a lot of potential good for carbon reduction and for overall environmental um, protection. So it's interesting to have this conversation after the conversation we just had where our government is doing so much to block things in a way that would help our environmental uh, progress. And yet uh, we have so many people on an international scale who are making great strides in turning that around. So welcome, gentlemen, to A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you both. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. 
Sure. Uh, let's start with Joe Robertson. You've been involved in this process for a number of years now. Your background, interestingly, is uh, a poet. Your background is uh, poetic in nature, and somehow you um, walked into this. First, describe a little bit about how that happened and what you're doing currently. Sure. Well, as a as a writer and a student of philosophy and languages, you know, the degree to which we're speaking truth and getting things right was always a focus for me. And so when I discovered um, ecological economics by reading the work of Lester Brown, I just tried to figure out what I could do. I started doing translations for them, and I started doing ecological economic reporting of my own And then, in, for, for many years. And then in 2010, I discovered Citizens Climate Lobby, and I joined as a volunteer. And so for years, I have my own publishing work on the side. I was doing work through uh, Villanova University on sustainability policy um, and was able to put out the book Building a Green Economy in 2010, and then... Uh, starting in 2014, became Global Strategy Director for Citizens Climate Lobby. Now, just tell us a little bit about Citizens Climate Lobby. What is it? What is its size? What is it doing? Sure. Well, um, so what we do is we work with groups of citizen volunteers, you know, sometimes just a handful is enough, in their local communities. And what they focus on is doing a handful of specific activities that are useful for building relationships with their own members of Congress. So that means they have meetings with those members of Congress. It means they write to the press. It means that they are getting into relationships with editors, and they are trying to develop a narrative that is not just meant to influence their elected officials. It's meant to interact with them. So they learn from those elected officials. They begin to understand better what the landscape of the political um, of political yeah. will looks like, and then they help to shape it. So when I joined in 2010, um, there were about 100 people in 10 active local chapters and another few in development. Um, we now have over 16,000 registered uh, supporters, um, about 3,500 of whom are active volunteers doing lobbying and trained local groups in this way. Um, last year, our volunteers had more than 1,000 meetings with members of Congress and their staff to talk about climate policy uh, mm -hmm. more than anybody else ever has. Um, and those are not, you know, people going into an office to wag their fingers and make demands. Those are people sitting down in an arranged meeting to, to have real policy conversations, and they're becoming part of the policy team for those elected officials. Oh, that is such good news. So of those 1,000 meetings, I know this is a bit general, but what kind of effect, Joe, do you think that uh, those meetings have had on the education and then on policy legislation uh, that those congresspeople help to uh, engage in effect? Well, you know, there's a very big difference between what happens... Is there something concrete that meeting? you could cite that has occurred from those thousand meetings last year? Well, so certainly the way that um, legislation designed to price carbon has been going in the last few years, you see more and more of the structure of our proposal getting into those legislative proposals. Um, mm -hmm. Some concrete things that you can see are 
Um, you know, on December 4th of last year, Republican Congressman uh, Chris Gibson responding in part to the work of our volunteers and in part to the, the Quakers' uh, call to conscience on climate change announced that he would introduce a resolution calling on his colleagues to deal with climate change as a moral issue. Um, that's an important breakthrough. And another thing that you saw in January when 98 out of uh, 100 senators voted that climate change is real and not a hoax, people like to say, well, that's not really a victory because they voted that it's not real, I mean, that it's not human-caused, which they never did. That vote never happened. Um, oh. The the 98 to 1 vote never mentioned that issue. And on the resolutions that did mention that issue, some of them passed and some of them didn't pass, but there was no vote that it's not caused by human beings. One of the resolutions included 15 Republican senators, some of whom mm -hmm. have in the past been staunch deniers. And I would say that the transformational kind of, of um, outcome that you see from this level of direct human engagement with elected officials is that what can happen behind the scenes where you, you learn that none of these people are really deniers at all, um, that can start to filter into the public discourse. Our public discourse on climate change is absolutely abominably toxic. It is a very bad um, issue of controversy where you have people who are so firmly in different camps that the way they speak about each other is often more like hate speech than it is like policy discussion. And so mm -hmm. what comes out of these meetings is you learn the person who said that your policy is ridiculous in a press conference last week is actually not all that far away from your policy in terms of their ideological preferences. You learn that because you have a real conversation with them. They learn mm. they don't have to mock you or defend themselves against being mocked. They can actually sit down and tell you what they value, what they'd like to be remembered for, what they want to do for their grandchildren. Yeah. And so little by little, you're starting to see that momentum surface. What, what you have right now in the U.S. Congress is you have a situation where one party does really well talking about climate change, and the other party could do really well talking about climate change, but has a massive hurdle to get over. And that massive hurdle they have to get over is all of the money that will come at them from their side if they're too brave. And so... That will come the at them in, or will stop coming at them? That will come at them in the form of an attack. Um, As an attack, the, instead of to yeah, them, it comes degrees, at them, right? Yeah. There are degrees to which members of Congress and the political parties don't really control the flow of campaign finance or the priorities in the campaigns. Um, mm -hmm. the, the amount of time an individual spends trying to raise money is just absurd. Some of them spend 35 hours a week trying to raise money mm -hmm. for their next campaign, and they have no choice. And so yes. I want to bring this back to what we do. The reason that Citizens Climate Lobby exists is because our founder worked for a couple of decades with Results. Results does what we do on hunger, poverty, and disease. They worked with the Hunger Project. The work Project of Sam Daly-Harris. Exactly. Is that what you're referring so, to? Yeah. Yes. Who Sam we've had on the show several times. Yeah. And when you hear Sam talk about the problem uh, that we have in terms of the politics of our legislature, um, the dysfunction, the things that don't work, you know, People want to know what's a member of Congress like because they've never even thought of trying to meet one. Um, 
when you disengage from your elected officials, when you send them there to do a job and they swear an oath to you that they will serve you, and then you just disconnect. You have no contact with them. The only contact that you ever have is to call them names or to complain about what they didn't do on your behalf. What you're allowing to happen is you're allowing them to be completely dependent on other people. And those other people are not the voters they swore to serve. They're the interest groups that are going to be asking for things and that are going to be trying to yes. change the way our politics works to, to serve their interests. So we make sure that people are in the room. That's a very good point. Very good point. Yeah. You, in a sense, it's a relationship, and you have alienated the other party. And that other party, it's you know, it's not unlike you know a, a lover relationship. If you're not giving what they want, they may go somewhere else to get what they need. I mean, a lot of us are cynical about about how politics works. But if you have someone who comes into office and they swear an oath to you, they're swearing an oath that they will be your servant. They're going to do their best to give you the best of themselves. And then you don't support them in that work. It's going to be a lot harder for them to do it, no matter what their character is. And so, you know, we want people to be there. We find that if citizens are present, that is much more powerful to the people in office than than having donors around. Nobody likes to be told what to do by someone who's flashing money. Because of money. Everybody likes to be told that they're a hero because they're doing the good work of government. The right thing, exactly. Thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate this. Um, We'll be coming back to you. Lachlan Arts, I want to uh, bring you into the conversation. You uh, got inspired to get involved in the whole question of COP21. What brought you to that and to the citizens' uh, lobby effort? Okay, thanks. Um, well, this was a little bit over a year ago, so I'm definitely definitely new to the whole climate change conversation, but I was doing some work at that time as a journalist, and I had done three stories on global warming. And... Um, and just got very, very interested, uh, not just as a journalist, but just just as a a person in the world, I couldn't get the kind of simple answers that I was looking for, which is exactly where are we? Not doomsday or optimism or anything, but just exactly where are we? Where are we predictably headed? Um, How much time do we have before it's too late in which to turn this around? And is what we're doing and planning to do going to be sufficient to stave off the disaster? And so I just started asking those questions, and I uh, found myself, you know, in previous projects, you know, I've had some wonderful colleagues that got to work with, so I had a few at the United Nations, and so I asked them and some other scientists and, you know, people that were quote-unquote experts, and every one of them to a person either said, it's already too late, or but nobody said any more than 10 years, and most were around five, uh, that we have it to turn it around. And everyone was resoundingly what we're doing and predicted to do is going to be far insufficient to solve the problem. Mm. So that was, for me, kind of the turning point. And I just said to myself, I don't think people have any idea what's happening. I certainly didn't. And I think if you're on the planet... You have a right to know that this is the situation and 
you also should have the opportunity to take some kind of action that would actually make a difference in closing this gap and, you know, really kind of interrupting this predictable future. And so then I went about, uh, you know, just getting reports and studies and reading and, you know, every, everything I could get my hands on it and, you know, investigating other organizations and grassroots organizations and political organizations and, you know, the UN organizations and, you know, all of that. And, and, uh, uh, had the wonderful uh, good fortune of meeting Joe, and uh, 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 through a series of conversations, you know, was, and found Citizens Climate Lobby to be really the the best opportunity I had seen for civil society, an ordinary person like me who wasn't a scientist, who didn't have a lot of money who didn't really have any real influence in the world the way people look at, you know, influencers, um, you know, wasn't a government official or a delegate, uh, you know, that, that could actually get involved in the policy process um, that's mm-hmm. happening right now with COP21. And uh, one of the things, another kind of another watershed moment for me is I remember, and I remember this, always in a conversation with Joe, I was like, look, you know, there's like 4,000 lines of text in this Paris Agreement. You know, I said, what what would actually be the success in Paris? What could we as an ordinary human being, what could we walk, what could we know that if we walked away from this happening in Paris, that we would have reversed that predictable future? And uh, he told me that, he said, well, there, he said three things. One is that all the countries would commit to full decarbonization by 2050. The second is is that uh, carbon pricing would really be aligned on, uh, seen as the key driver in that. And the third thing is that there would be an establishment of a real citizen citizens engagement network that would welcome participation of ordinary people in the policy process, both for climate change and then for you know issues to come. This could be a working model for lots of issues that we have in the world. And uh, yeah. and that, for me, kind of hit it, because then it was like, all right, great. I, I have enough now that I could offer anybody on the street, look, do you want to really take a stand for ending global warming? Not just work on it, not just be a part of it, not just do something that you think might happen, but really stand up and say, this is my planet, this is my conference, I'm not going to leave this up to the politicians or the delegates or the scientists. I'm going to be a part of ending this, and this is what I'm going to do. And so we invented what we call the Paris Pledge, and uh, which is at parispledge.com, and which is an opportunity to actually commit to the end of global warming. And that how we're going to do that is that we're going to ensure the success of COP21 by really demanding of our delegates that these three outcomes are are established. Who is we in that? pledge it's it's the individual so it's any we want we so want, it's, we it's are, individual citizens absolutely it's and then the they, share it with the the, people. they share it with someone and so that so that we want to we want to produce a global awareness um among civil society of the importance of this conference this is the last convening of all of the countries that is going to happen while the window is still open. Yes, and, I got it. I got uh, it. If you, if, yeah. even if, and if you listen to the people, including the two co-chairs of the conference, they are already saying that they do not expect an agreement to come out of that conference 
that will be sufficient to limiting us from blowing past the two-degree threshold. So we want, as civil society, to come in uh, as a demand, as a, you know, as a, our stake in this thing, that we want, we want the delegates to know, we want the world to know that we are standing for the success of this. And, all, and these three outcomes are economically possible, they're technically possible, there are studies that have done, you know, Citizens Climate Lobby has, you know, amazing resources that lay out, no, this is absolutely possible. The only thing that we are, we're missing is the political will. Yes. And we, we like want to demand, uh, much like when we, so that's, that's that. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that, Lachlan. I, I like the citizenry, uh, we the people aspect of what you're doing. And, of course, uh, the Citizens Climate Lobby is about citizens and their voice as well. So it's, there's a, a good confluence occurring here between the Paris Pledge and this, distinct as they may be on one level, there's another on which they're very united. Uh, I have had... And, uh, and, if I, Dr. and if I could just say one, one other thing, just to interject, and, and, you know, when people make the pledge, they go to a page that gives them actions to take, so this isn't just some petition. And, you know, the Citizens Climate Lobby has been great enough to actually design a page that one of the things that people can do once they make the pledge is that they go right to Citizens Climate Lobby to, to participate in one of their working groups because what's going to make the difference is action, not just signing a petition. Right. Good, good, good. I'm, I'm very, very pleased to hear that. I've had uh, Dr. Mark Jacobson on of Stanford University, professor of material sciences, who has the Solutions Project. It's a brilliant and very studied uh, approach to converting all fossil fuel uh, needs, what we're relying on now in, on fossil fuels, to renewables, wind, solar, geothermal, a few others, hydropower to some extent. And he's laid out a, essentially a, a world map of based on a respective nation's uh, current needs, what they would need from the renewables, and by what date, if there were immediate conversion to renewable, by what date they could do so. A lot of them are by 2020, if I recall, 2022. So... Joe Robertson, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that in light of this 2050 date that seems on the table now, or are you interested in uh, modifying that? So the, the 2050 date is related to the fact that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, has determined that truly dangerous, unmanageable climate change will occur if we see a global average temperature rise of two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels roughly by 2050. So the goal is to get the kind of thing happening on, in time to prevent us from, from hitting that threshold. Um, that's why you hear about 2050 a lot. Um, some people think there's a longer window, but the thing is that the emissions that are causing the Earth to warm, they're 
period of warming activity is much longer than when they just go up into the air. They they stay there for decades and the warming intensifies. So yeah. that's why you get the 2050. The agreement as it's being written uh, was already agreed in Durban, South Africa, would would have all of the nations that are parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change agree to plans that would come into full force no later than 2020. So when Lachlan says, you know, friends are saying we've got about five years, this is why this is the last time that the annual meeting of all of the countries in the climate agreement um, will have that window of opportunity open. It's because what's agreed now at the end of 2015 must come into force no later than 2020. Some are already in force, like, for instance, the European Union, the United States, their national or international in the European Union case plans have been in effect and moving forward for more than a decade. Um, So the goal is to accelerate them. Um, Other countries are just about to get started. They won't even start cutting emissions until some ways into the future. So the way that all of this relates to the work of Mark Jacobson and the Solutions Project is every country has to put forward what's called an INDC, an Intended Nationally Determined Contribution, which as of December 11th, 2015, when the Paris Agreement becomes official, that would become a nationally determined contribution, meaning Mm -hmm. it's no longer intended, it's now in motion, and it's a contribution to the global climate response. So each of those INDCs is basically a plan to get to zero carbon someday. So the question Mm -hmm. then is, how fast are you going to get there? Um, There's another project called the Sustainable Development Solutions Network in association with Columbia University's Earth Institute and um, IDRI at Sciences Po in Paris and the United Nations that's working to actually do that same kind of deep decarbonization mapping for the 15 largest industrial economies to show that you can actually get to either close to zero or zero Um, carbon emissions in the year 2050. So for some people, having a long-term goal like that runs the risk that we won't have short-term action. But what's been changed about the whole negotiating process is that you can have both. You can have the long-term goal, and you might as well have the strongest one, the one that Lachlan mentioned, which is full decarbonization by 2050, no more burning stuff. And then and that's an easy goal that you can universalize. Some countries are close already. They have a low-carbon footprint to begin with. They just need low-carbon development. They need to go straight into what Mark Jacobson is talking about. And mm-hmm. other countries like ours have to do a lot of decarbonization. They have to change their infrastructure. Um, and so each of those countries can follow its own path. Some can get to zero carbon in 2020 or 2022. Some will take until 2030. And This process assumes that the countries that are the most dependent on an exorbitant amount of of fossil fuel consumption, like the United States, Europe, or China, um, may take a little longer. But that process is now being designed in in a very specific way. And what's interesting about it, I just want to say a couple of things very quickly that are unique and that are important. One is, Mm -hmm. unlike the trade deals that we were hearing about earlier, This process Mm -hmm. is totally open. You can read the agreement online. The whole thing is there. Whenever there's a new draft of it, which only happens during negotiations where all of the countries are present, the new draft is immediately put online that same day. Um, 
everyone everywhere on earth can see it and work on it and think about it. Um, Interesting. When you say work on it, thing. what do you mean by work on it? Well, so can add comments. So every country has the right to have the people within its jurisdiction who have some sort of authority go to work on that, and each country could determine who its delegates are. So one country might have only scientists on its negotiating team, another one might have only legislators, another might have friends of their president, you know. Um, But there's no area of government that is in any way by law excluded or kept in the dark about what's going on. Um, What we're working on is how we open that up to everybody. So the the third element that Laughlin talked about, the Citizens Climate Engagement Network, what that would be is not this, the day-to-day relationship building that Citizens Climate Lobby does. We'll keep doing that and we'll keep growing that effort and, and building those local relationships. But the Citizens Climate Engagement Network would be a way for citizens everywhere to actually engage the policy process. So your government might choose to represent you in a way you're not you know, you don't approve of, you could actually enter into the global process through this network and have some influence over the outcome. So we're working on how to build that with other non-governmental organizations, also with friends uh, across the UN system, the Climate Action Network, so that that's a legitimate and open process that has the capability for not just government officials to have a say, um, not just people who are accredited by the UN um, Climate Secretariat, but also people who are able to be in those local meetings and work together as peers to be able to say, you know what, we, we've been promised escalating ambition, we've been promised a better and better climate policy year after year, and we're, we're going to demand it. I think that's fantastic. I would like to see that same procedure and same template be applied to democratic process here at home in respect to our citizens, we, the people, and our own Congress. I think that's just a, I mean, in part, it's in place, yes, mm-hmm. but there remains a whole lot too much secrecy around and uh, hidden, uh, hidden actions and monies that are influencing the process. But I'm, I'm yeah. heartened to hear this aspect of what you're both sharing with me here. This is great. Thank now, you. yes. Um, what regarding the building of a coalition? Because that's something that uh, Lachlan and you, Joe, have referenced here. There is an opportunity for hundreds of countries to be gathered at the same table. A remarkable moment historically in itself, uh, and to come to some agreement. And uh, it will be about climate change, because that's top priority. But in fact, it could also be on any number of other things. So instead of what might have been referred to in the past as the New World Order, which I think is still wagging its finger at us in different ways, uh, that's the 1% New World Order, this might be the New World Order that is actually of, if you don't mind my engaging that motif, the 99%. So could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, well, so... And then Lachlan, please weigh in after Joe. You know, I think the reason those kind of um, phrases elicit so much passion is because we have been for a thousand years in 
a period of transition from feudalism to democracy. And all these other things come up and these different kind of ideologies come along and you hear about fascism or communism or these different things that could be a way of managing that transition. But the one that ultimately I think is going to win out is simply open democracy. And so that doesn't mean that every person on every street corner has to vote yes or no on every policy. Referenda don't always give you the best result. But you can actually create an atmosphere where openness and inclusion is what gives legitimacy to decision makers. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you have an agreement where the head of state is going to say, here's what this agreement's going to do for us, and the whole thing is secret and nobody knows what's in it, and a lot of people are scared by that, and some of the people who are, you know, have special access are the very people that scare everyone else, then mm -hmm. you have a process that's going to cause people to be unhappy and not supportive, even if they're wrong, even if it were a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. If you have an agreement where there are imperfections and you can't get everything that you want, but the whole process is open and you can see very clearly that the people who represent you are speaking truth to you, they are working on your behalf, they're doing the best that they can, and when they tell you they're trying to get a good outcome for you, you can actually see it and you can play a role in it. You can help shape how they think. You can help yes. set the list of priorities. That's what's going to give you credibility. And I think that it's just an irrefutable fact that we are moving as a global village towards that day when that's what gives you legitimacy. And you won't have totalitarian dictatorships and secret meetings and those kind of problems. You're going to have that, that transition will be complete. And if you go to one of these climate conferences and you see First of all, lots of people get disappointed because not everybody gets their way, and it's very hard to get 195 countries to agree to one big thing. There are lots of little things that are getting agreed that are very powerful and very positive, but what you see that's really, I think, impressive is you don't see some sort of cabal, some sort of new world order taking control of things. What you see is thousands of if not tens of thousands of people who have come there on behalf of other human beings, on behalf of future generations, to negotiate in the most intense way imaginable. People who will spend two weeks with virtually no sleep, who just spend as much time <laughs> as they can learning, talking, educating each other, um, you know, sharing ideas, adopting best practices, scrapping ideas that they realize were you know, not going to work. All of that process can actually be quite beautiful when you realize how much human intelligence and how much human goodwill is going into it. What we need yes. is we need people getting into that process, having access, having the right to see what's going on, having the right to participate, so that that energy, that positive energy that says we're better off if we do big things together than we would be if we just opposed each other and said let's not help get this done. Um, mm -hmm. that, that might sound mm -hmm. like just talk, but it's not. It's what influences the political landscape. Does a, does a government think it will be better off, quote-unquote, taking the risk of deep decarbonization? What if no one else does it? Well, exactly. the fact no, is it will be better that. off. You'll have a cleaner, more prosperous uh, country, and people will be happier with you. So the way that we get everybody there is by 
more openness, more engagement, and by celebrating the power of, of that kind of transformation. And I think this year we're on that road. There's a lot of talk about You're these bold path, yeah. goals like deep, like full decarbonization. That was never really in the cards before, something that aggressive. It's very interesting. I want to bring something else up here that uh, on one hand, the uh, conversation and the goal set, uh, which are noble, and I'm very pleased to hear. Uh, of course, I would like to see the 2050 number move to 2020 or 2022 or 2025, uh, and I'm thinking about Bill McKibben and 350.org and the importance of 350 parts per million, and I'm also thinking uh, aloud of the nonlinearity about the entire process. This is not just about the expenditure of fossil fuels, even though that's something I myself as an environmentalist and an eco-entrepreneur and uh, involved in media have been looking at a lot, as we all do. But the releases of methane, especially as have occurred in the Siberian area over the last couple of years of measuring the largest releases of methane, which also occur as a result of volcanic activity, of course, earthquakes, etc., these actually dwarf, virtually dwarf, the effect of what we have more control over, which is uh, the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, which, of course, is an important, important ingredient, but by no means is it the only one, and we don't have a lot of control these days over these other natural, so-called natural methane releases, which are occurring, it seems, as a result of melting ice, and the ice and the change of currents, etc., is a function of, yes, it's, it's circular in nature, understood, but what, yeah. Lachlan, what do you understand about our well, role in that, and what can we do about that? Okay, well, first of all, that's a question for Joe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would, however, like to respond to the previous question, if I could do that. Surely. Um, uh, because I, I did want to add, because I think, you know, what... Joe and Citizens Climate Lobby, you know, I think this whole business of the Citizens Engagement Network, I think one way you could hear that is there's something about the way it already is, and we're going to get more citizens in the way that it already is involved. And mm -hmm. that's, that isn't it at all. I don't, I, don't, I don't see it. And I really do see it as transformative. And I see it as you know, when people talk about the 1% or the Republicans or the Democrats or the corporations or the greedy oil companies or kind of whoever's out there is this perceived one with power and the one to be overthrown and all of that, I think that whole archetype is just going the way of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And um, that there is kind of this wanting to get awakened the power of the individual. And yeah. that once once someone has actually given themselves the power to say this whole thing is mine. The whole thing is mine. The whole business with the planet, the planet is mine. The condition of the planet is mine. How it, you know, is, is that then you've got somebody that's got real responsibility in the matter and isn't just out to slay the current enemy. And um, yes, that, I appreciate when, that, that when that, that kind of that's engagement a mind is shift there. That needs to occur. 
Exactly. Then you've got then, because I see this as, my goodness, I mean, this is obviously kind of, I see it as a, as a terrific model in terms of, you know, climate change, right? But, you know, what this can be in terms of the leverage of this kind of model in the Middle East and the, you know, what we're dealing with in the matter of race. I mean, it's like it is the opportunity for any human being to have the power of the say of what's actually happening in the world rather than trying yes. to fight themselves into the, the right caste or class or uh, socioeconomic group that's actually running the show. And so um, I, I just really applaud the whole, the whole, the, you know, it's, you know, it was, I was, got this, we were, Joe and I were both at uh, uh talk the other night by uh, uh, Selwyn Hart, who's the director, secretary general's, director of the secretary general's climate change support team and a big player in COP21. And the thing that he said that I found most just really inspiring, he said, civil society has an important role to play in driving ambition. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, I, I, and I am totally standing for that it is civil society that will make the difference in this situation. Yes. yes. Well, it sounds like there are also these vehicles that are very much in place, uh, yes. such as the Citizens Climate Lobby, which is yes. very, very embracing and has grown exponentially over just a few years. It is yes. highly reflective of... Americans, human beings' interest in the cause yeah. and in the uh, the values of a renewable world, you know, basis yeah. of, uh, of our economy. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you, Lachlan. I, I very much appreciate yeah, and, that. And I didn't and mean you, to sidetrack your question, but Joe would be the one to respond no, no. to the methane question. I understand. Me, so thank I'm you. Deferring to him now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, Lachlan. Could you, Joe, respond to uh, the circularity, the nonlinearity and the circularity of my point yeah. prior? Well, so nonlinear, uh, you know, circularity is exactly the problem. You've got these, these what are called positive feedback loops, but that just means that the problem gets worse and then makes yeah. itself worse. Um, that's the, the kind of methane release that we're starting to see from melting permafrost in um, Siberia and in some parts of the Arctic is just, mm-hmm. it was not supposed to arrive so soon. We're, we're getting to these very <laughs> right. dangerous tipping points very fast. So yeah. I actually want to answer this question, though, partly in the spirit of what Lachlan was just saying. Um, about how civil society can raise ambition and how getting involved really changes things. So last year before the the COP20 in Lima, there was a meeting in Copenhagen to review the the most recent work of the IPCC, the scientific uh, community's work on climate change. And of the UN. That meeting was actually a political meeting where the governments that support the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change want to have their say in how the phrasing of this final report is is issued. The science clearly shows that if we aim for a two degrees Celsius threshold, aiming for that and getting there at the date that we project we would get there could actually get us there too late because of that problem where greenhouse gases linger in the atmosphere and there are these feedback Well, we do not have the models. The models, computer-generated models, no longer can effectively predict uh, dealing with uh, the changing uh, tipping points. 
Well, what's ha- yeah, what's happening is so many of the different interactions of yes. different natural phenomena and and chemistry at work in the atmosphere and the oceans in the have more impact yeah. than we've been able to really track before that we keep having to make the models more sophisticated to get more accurate. Um, essentially, the problem is worse than we used to know how to quantify. But the yeah. in that meeting, there was... Throughout 2014, there was an effort by a group of small island developing states to argue that the two-degree mark is way too high. If we aim for that, their countries will disappear underwater. So they want Mm -hmm. a 1.5-degree threshold and no more than 1.5. And a lot of people felt this was unrealistic, and and some scientists said, let's be more realistic and go for four, because at least we'll have a realistic target. Um, so there was a real atmosphere of despair in some of the climate movement, and then there was this other push for more ambition. And in Copenhagen last November, um, citizen volunteers who were able to attend the meeting as part of a coalition of civil society groups, including one of our own volunteers, they were able to be in the room when the negotiators were discussing how do we talk about the temperature threshold. And so many people had testified that we need a more ambitious target that one of these citizen volunteers just leaned over to one of the national delegates who was not from their country but was just in front of them at the table and said, don't you think we need a more aggressive target? 1.5 would be a better target and it would help us get where we need to go. She raised her hand. She suggested it. It ended up in the text and in Lima the agreement, the consensus agreement of all of the world's governments that are part of the climate treaty, for the first time ever included 1.5 degrees Celsius as an alternate to 2 degrees. And so I tell you that story because it's an example of how being in the room, not as, you know, a corporate leader or a government official, but just as an ordinary person representing the good of humanity, and the good for the earth, you can actually raise ambition by doing that, by showing up, yeah. by having a voice. But but you have to be able to do it in a way that's constructive, where you're welcome, where everybody's benefiting and sharing resources, and where you're essentially joining the team. Um, there's no other way that we're going to stop the the methane release from the deep ocean or from Siberia other than that kind of thing. Because the governments, yeah. you know, Buckminster Fuller, decades ago said governments are not set up to help each other. They're set up to destroy each other. That's their purpose. So in order to get them to work together, you have to do a lot of of encouraging and you have to do a lot of hand-holding. On the level of the people. Yeah, that's for us, the citizens, to do, to show our leaders that we want to be friends with each other and we want a good outcome for the world. And we do respect future generations as much as we respect ourselves. We don't want to impose harm on them unnecessarily. Absolutely. So um, I'd like to that's, add something that's how we're going to raise ambition. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think it's a very, very good point. And in fact, what's occurring to me in listening to you both talk is that just as we have not been able to control for or even predict or even in some cases be aware of the variables that figure in ecosystemically to tipping the points uh, toward uh, greater warming and greater melting, 
so, we can't account for and control all, all the variables or even be aware of all of the human variables that would go into the mystery story, if you will, the narrative of human beings interacting with each other. I mean, I have really personally been a great um, supporter of the role of music, art, and humor for helping to shift the consciousness, the headsets of heads of state as well as uh, captains of industry. I, I just think that there is a magic in the human being and human nature that changes things from being a more linearized type of academic conversation to something that's much more heartfelt and authentic. And that can happen in a moment. That can happen from a really good joke. It can happen from a really bad one. You know, it could happen from a deeply meaningful song. It can happen from a beautiful piece of poetry, Joe. You know, you know what I mean? What I'm saying is yeah. we cannot... It's unpredictive. It's unpredictable what happens both in the environment and inside the human mind and heart. And I think that that's an analogy that can really help to guide us forward in what the two of you are up to relative to your ambitions uh, with COP21, yeah. both in Bonn and Paris. And I, I just yeah, want I to think support it's, you it's both. It's exactly what Joe was saying. I mean, you know, people look at it like, okay, the governments are getting together. Well, that's a concept. What's going to be getting together are human beings. And, and yes, right. they come from different geographical areas, and they have different accountabilities, and they've gotten elected or appointed. They have their own self All the better. Thing, but yeah. Exactly, but they are human beings. And, and yeah. you know, there isn't one of them that if you, you know, actually got them in a room and said, listen, what do you want for the world? They all want the same thing, and they're all working yeah. their butts off for the most part to make it happen, and then there's whatever else that gets in the way of all that. But, you know, you just want to, you know, you include that. Don't make it, don't blame it. Don't villainize them about it, but vilify them, but, and, and actually have a human-to-human -human conversation, and, you know, amazing things happen. Yes, exactly. And, well it, put. and it, it, is a, it is, you know, it's actions that got us into this mess, Okay. And it's only action that's going to get us out. That's right. And uh, it's, you know, one conversation at a time, and, you know, that's how it's going to happen. Exactly. And going from two, not four, not going in that direction of four degrees, thankfully, but down to 1.5. And uh, there's another variable. Let me just throw this in, in our closing moments here. Uh, Joe, I know you're particularly aware of this as am I, and that is that rather than feeling like you must impose these kinds of uh, limits to growth, if you will, uh, but businesses, uh, captains of industry are beginning to see the good quality economic sense of being ecological and being eco-sensitive. So mm -hmm. if you want to talk about change on a dime, again, pardon me, no pun intended, you are going to see a very rapid change when they see that there's more money on the end of that rainbow of doing things green and renewably than there is anywhere else. That's a very interesting turning point where business could be leading and in some cases is leading the way. Uh, that goes beyond the agreements made at a COP21 kind of agreement, uh, 
conference. Could you comment on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I, I want to just acknowledge Lachlan's um, contextual transformation um, approach, and that's really what this is all about. Um, when when the climate process started, as you were just pointing out, um, the thinking was this is a burden. We have to limit ourselves, and there was a sense that the industrialized countries have to quote, bear the burden because they had right. created the Sacrifice. problem and it was going to be massively mm-hmm. expensive and we would see slowing growth and all of this. But now you can look at the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund. You can go to the World Resources Institute or the American Enterprise Institute. You can look at studies that were done of our approach to pricing carbon called carbon fee and dividend. And what you consistently see is that if you price carbon and you make sure that the hidden costs of this very expensive business model of using combustible fuels are internalized to that industry. If you get those policies right, then this transition is never expensive. There are going to be investments that have to be made, but investments pay off. And we have a much, much more prosperous future in clean energy investment and low-carbon development than we have ever had in fossil fuels. And as you said, that's what people are now starting to see. In December, even if the, the agreement among 195 countries doesn't have each of those countries on a direct path to zero carbon, Mm-hmm. just yet, the agreement will include escalating ambition, meaning they have to keep ratcheting up the intensity of their effort as they go forward, as they become more capable technologically and economically. But what we're going to see is we're going to see an agreement among 195 countries to move to a low-carbon economy, and that is going to unleash the biggest flow of investment that the world has ever seen. It's going to dwarf what happened during the Internet boom when we were building the Internet. Um, this is – it's not just politics. It's not just environmentalism. This is, this is how you build societies. You've got 400 million people in India who don't have electricity. They're either going to burn coal, and we will never get this under control, or they're going to agree not to do that. And when that happens, there's going to be – an investment opportunity for people who want to deliver electricity in a clean, green way to 400 million people in India, which is 30% more than the population of the United States. Uh, That is the kind of thing that's going to allow everybody to move contextually to a real transformation agenda where we start to realize that we're freer if we get this right, we're richer if we get this right, we'll have less conflict between nations if we get this right, and where instead of nations thinking, I don't want to be the one to put all the energy in and and carry the burden, what they're going to be thinking is, I don't want to be the one with the least ambitious plan. I don't want to be the one no one wants to invest in because I didn't get it. I didn't have that vision thing. You bet. We're moving in that direction. It's and the I changing think, of the conversation. It's the changing of the of the conversation about what's what and uh, where to go from here. And, it's uh, really happening, I and I, I don't want to take anything away yeah. from the oh, need yeah. to to resist the, the the secret negotiations going on in trade deals. Those kind of things need to be done in the open, and we need democracy, um, and we can't have our constitution circumvented. But yeah. I think that. If we support this kind of ambitious outcome in this open process, if we celebrate that and we support the people doing the hard work, we're going to have a better chance of avoiding that kind of 
of terrible politics in the future than by any other yeah. means. Exactly. That's the, that's, you know, it's funny to say that's the side effect, but that is you, you are building, we are building a coalition as a result and relationships, global relationships that will um, far uh, succeed this, uh, these couple of meetings, uh, actually the whole COP, COP series of conferences it will go beyond and we'll have kind of a a global parliament if you will and that looks like where this yeah. is uh going i i want to thank you both we're out of time i think it's just been wonderful uh chatting with you in this roundtable about this subject it's uh so important and i so appreciate what both of you lachlan arts and joseph robertson are bringing to the table. Uh, would you both uh, give your respective uh, uh, websites for our listeners to go visit and get involved with? Sure. Uh, um, this is, uh, our, ours is uh, parispledge.com. Parispledge.com. Okay, Parispledge.com. You go to the site, make the pledge right there. Next page gives you the actions you can take. Share the pledge with other people. Make a video making the pledge. Get it out there. Beautiful. I so love it. And Joseph. Yes, you can. You can go to pathwaytoparis.org, and right there you can join the Pathway to Paris effort, help us build this global network. And you can also go to citizensclimatelobby.org, and there you can sign up and become a Citizens Climate Lobby volunteer wherever you are in the world. If you don't have a local group, we'll help you start one. Beautiful. I love it. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so much for weighing in today uh, for our audience and sharing your good work with with us all here at A Better World, which I think you're getting, gathering what we're committed to. So you're very much yeah. part of the solution, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you very Absolutely. much. And I'd just like to say I loved being welcomed with the phrase, welcome to a better world. Yes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you know what? That was part of my original marketing. After it emerged from my heart, I went, you know what? Who doesn't want to be welcomed to a better world? So. Thank you for that acknowledgement. After all of these years, someone got it. I appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. Right. And uh, Joe, Thank we will you. talk about having you on to discuss the uh, the bare bones of a green economy based on your book, sure. which I, I very much welcome. Okay? Anytime. I look forward Thanks to Thanks again. And I'll Thank talk you. with you both soon. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sure. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I am so glad that you have joined me again today for our deep conversations, uh, first with Adam Weissman on the uh, trade agreements that are on the table of Congress right now and the nature of those agreements and their implications, and just now with Lachlan Arts and Joseph Robertson, and uh, talking about COP21 coming up in Bonn and Paris, and the undergirding of those, the amounts of different types of benefits that can accrue in terms of building a global citizenry 
citizenry, a global identity, if you will. And more than anything, conversations, we're all learning a same language. And that's, how do I put it? It's a language of love. It's a language of compassion. It's a language of caring about our beautiful earth, our environment, and each other. So uh, that's what's going on, folks. At base, that is really what's going on. So thanks again, and please visit our website, uh, betterworld.tv. Sign up for the uh, free newsletter. We are now a 501c3. We accept donations from any corner of the world. Thanks so much. They are tax deductible now, so uh, please play a role, if you would, in that way to whatever extent you can and be part of the overall solution in both contacting your congresspeople about the uh, fast track and the TPP and the other trade agreements, as well as become part of the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. I think it's great. And ParisPledge.com. Thanks again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.